0: I want you to go up to Revelation chapter 19 this morning. Revelation, the 19th chapter. And if you uh, missed my uh, comments at the beginning of our service, uh, I'm in a tux today because we're going to talk about the wedding supper of the Lamb, courtesy of uh, Tuxedo Gallery over here on Sullivan. So if you get a tux in the near future, tell them hi from East Point. But um, we're going to focus on Revelation chapter 19 this morning, and finish up next week with our uh, series in the book of Revelation. We're going to cover the last three chapters of the book next week. And if you've read the book and you've read the last three chapters, You've got to wonder, how are we going to do that in one week? Well, come next week and you'll see. You'll find out. Uh, chapters 17 and 18, just prior to Revelation 19, primarily deal with the fall of Babylon. As Pastor Brian shared last week, some think Babylon is a literal city uh, rebuilt on the, the banks of the Euphrates River. Uh, others believe it, re- it refers to the revived Roman Empire. Uh, some actually, a few, but a few actually think it's um, America that uh, New York and that we become Babylon in our moral decadence and blah, blah, blah. Uh, I tend to land where Brian lands, and I agree with him, that I think it, it, it symbolically refers to an evil world system. that Babylon. Remember, there's a lot of symbolism in the book of Revelation. And I, I believe that what's referred here is this world system of evil. But here's the deal. Regardless of where you land, and I've said this several times as we walk through this series together. We don't care about debating the debatable. That doesn't really matter. Someday we'll all know what it really means, you know, because hindsight's 2020. But regardless of where you land on this issue, the important thing to understand is that whatever and wherever it is, whatever and wherever it is, it gets destroyed by God. That's the absolute. That's what we know for sure. It gets destroyed by Him in judgment of its moral and spiritual decadence. So chapter 19 begins with heaven rejoicing. Over the fall of Babylon, chapter 19 also deals with the wedding supper of the Lamb, which I mentioned. We'll get into in just a second, and the final defeat of the Antichrist in what is called the Battle of Armageddon. Uh, if you remember, that was in chapter 16. We looked at that 16, 16, and then Brian referred to it last week from chapter 17. But here's the deal, and I want to make sure we're all on the same page. Some of you weren't here last week. Some of you may have forgotten this already. So let me just make sure you get this. It's very important that we understand that God's wrath is no temper tantrum. When you look at, you know, Revelation 17 and 18 in particular, and you see the fall of the great prostitute Babylon and all that happens there, you need to know that God's wrath is not him just having a fit. It's not a temper tantrum. His judgments are just and true. And those who freely and willfully reject God, those who reject his love and his free gift of salvation, will ultimately experience His righteous wrath. And it's righteous. If you reject God, you're ultimately choosing to experience His righteous wrath. Again, as Pastor Brian put it so well last week, God's wrath stands against those who stand against Him. Good phrase. Truth. God's wrath stands against those who stand against Him. As we dive in chapter 19, you'll see there are two suppers mentioned in this book for two very different groups of people and two very different experiences. One group partakes in a great supper the other is the supper. And it gets kind of gruesome, but we'll look at it. Well, here's what I want you to walk away with today. Every week we've tried to give you kind of the rest stop info. It's in your outline. I encourage you to follow along and take some notes this morning. But the rest stop info says this. We were made for intimacy with God. You and I were made to be in relationship with Him. He loves us as a groom, loves His bride, and we can look forward with joy to the day of great celebration with Him. Now, Again, to help set the tone for today, besides me being in a tux here before you, I wanted to be in a kilt. Uh, our creative director, Teresa, kind of killed that. Wouldn't the kilt have been great? Yeah. yeah you know, kind of Scottish, but i a good Scottish name. That's not true. It's not a... Anyhow, I want to show you a shocking picture. Let's pull that picture up there. Look at that. Unbelievable. I don't know who that guy is with my wife, but on the left is my beautiful bride, and she hasn't changed. She's the same yesterday, today, and Forever. And uh, that's me, believe it or not, in a white tux 30 years ago. Uh, I was just 18 years old when I got married to my wonderful, life, wife, life, <laughs> my wonderful wife, Laura. And uh, people thought we'd never make it. And, uh, a lot of our friends thought, oh, man, this is a big mistake. And uh, just this last July, we celebrated our 30th wedding anniversary. You know, that was a long time ago, though our wedding was many, many moons ago. I remember our wedding like it was yesterday. I remember the nervousness. Any of you, you know, grooms, remember being a little nervous? I remember the anticipation. I remember how I felt as I stood up in the front of that uh, Church of the Lighted Window locking out of California, and I saw my bride standing with her dad as the doors were open in the back of the church. I also remember messing up the words in the exchange of the rings. I said, with this wing, I thee red. I did. Ripple of laughter through the auditorium then, too. But more than anything, I remember the longing I had for her. And not just the longing for the marriage bed, if you're wondering. Uh, not just that. Uh, the longing that I had for her, to be with her, to spend my life with her. And the love that I had to, for her that just filled my heart and still does. I want you to listen to this. I want you to let this sink deeply into your soul today. Jesus longs for you. It's such a simple statement. But on. Un- Believable, incredible in its implications for us. Jesus longs for you. His love goes beyond description. It goes beyond any ability for us to really completely comprehend. It defies explanation. It baffles us. It surprises us. And it is the love of a groom for his bride. And a day of great celebration is coming. That's what we can look forward to. A day of great celebration is coming. And it's called the Feast at the Wedding Supper of the Lamb. Revelation 19, verse 1. Let's pick it up there. John says, After this, referring to after chapter 17 and 18, the fall of Babylon, its destruction. After this, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven, shouting, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And again they shouted, hallelujah. The smoke from her, Babylon, goes up forever and ever. Verse 4, the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who was seated on the throne. And they cried, amen, hallelujah. Then a voice came from the throne saying, praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, both small and great. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder. I love thunder. That's, it sounded like that. Shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. The word Hallelujah appears for the first time here in the New Testament. It's a word that we frequently use, but this is the first time it's actually used in the New Testament. And four times it's mentioned in this one chapter. And the word literally means praise the Lord. Most of you probably have heard that. It's From Hebrew words, and it means praise the Lord, praise Yahweh, praise God. And it it, it is this bold declaration of honor and praise for God and his goodness. But four times, again, it's used in this passage. And in verse 2, it's used, they shout hallelujah because God has defeated his enemies and ours. And so this great multitude shouts hallelujah. In verse 3, the reason for shouting there is that the victory is permanent. The significance of the smoke rising forever and ever. From the city of Babylon, it means that it's it's permanent. This victory is a done deal. God has won. Verse 4, the reason for shouting there is that God is sovereign. And overall, it says, the 24 elders cry out to the one who's seated on the throne. And if you recall when we looked at uh, the 24 elders early on in the series, that uh, they are there and they're worshiping the one on the throne. And on the throne implies this great power, this authority that he has, his sovereignty over all. And then verse 6 to 7, the reason for their shouting there is that that they're saying the time for rejoicing has come. Look at it again with me. Verse 6. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder, shouting hallelujah for the Lord our God, almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. At a deafening level, level. Now some of us don't like loud noises. But at this incredibly loud level, a great multitude cries out, hallelujah. And it's like the sound of Niagara Falls. Have you ever been by any great body of water like that? It's just, you can hardly hear yourself think it's so loud. 1988, I had the privilege of being at the Dodger game against the Oakland A's, the World Series game. And it's one of the greatest moments in baseball history. If you're a baseball fan, you'll recognize this story. Uh, It's on every great Mullinson baseball tape in the last, you know, 15 years. But it's a World Series game against the Oakland A's, and the Dodgers were losing by one run in the bottom of the ninth with one man on. Tommy Lasorda, to everybody's amazement, sent Kirk uh, Kirk Gibson in. They did not understand because he was injured, and they sent him in to pitch hit. And it's got a 3-2 count against him. He's almost out of there with a man on. And if, you know, if he can just get it on base or better than that, hit a home run, then the Dodgers win. Well, Gibson stepped up again and launched the ball, if you've seen it, if you remember the story. Launched the ball into the bleachers, home run. And it's the first time ever in World Series history that at the bottom of the ninth with, uh, you know, one uh, from, from, a comp- from behind home run, they win a game. Well, anyhow, I'm there in this crowd screaming and shouting. Uh, my oldest son, uh, Nathan, was about this tall at that time. I'm throwing him up in the air. People are screaming. Kurt Gibson limps, literally limps around the bases and then goes to the dugout like it's no big deal, you know. And then all the, uh, the, the players are saying, get out there. And, he, and this went on for 20 plus minutes. The yelling, the screaming, the unbelievable, you know, shouts of victory. And I, was, I shouted so loud and so long during that uh, time that I was hoarse for days afterwards. I want you to imagine that scene and then multiply it exponentially and hear a great multitude shouting like the roar of rushing waters. Hallelujah. For the Lord, our God, the Almighty reigns. They rejoice over God's victory. But a huge part of their joy and excitement is because the wedding feast of the Lamb and the wedding supper of the Lamb has come. And so I want us to take a pretty quick look this morning at the story of two feasts in this chapter. First one, number one, is a feast of great joy. It is a feast of great joy. It's called here, again in verse 9, the wedding supper of the Lamb. And Hebrew weddings generally consisted of four parts. They're very different than what we typically experience today. The betrothal, the presentation, the actual ceremony, and the wedding supper. And the betrothal, that could take place when they were kids. Before they ever had any uh, knowledge of each other, but at least it almost always happened about a year before the ceremony. And often there was an exchange of a ring or bracelet as a token or as a pledge. Then there's the presentation or the bridal procession, and that would normally take place at nighttime. And the bride, uh, excuse me, the groom and and, uh, his party would go to the, the bride's house. And they would then proceed from there, walk back to his home, the place where the ceremony would take place. Remember the parable of Jesus and the ten virgins and their lamps? And they, some were ready, some weren't. Well, that's this experience where they, the, the groom's now gone to the, the home of his bride to, to bring her back. Then there's the ceremony, which was actually one of the simpler, shortest parts of this whole process. Uh, there was some form of vows exchanged, but one of the great, great things would happen is is that the bride's veil would be removed during the ceremony and placed on the shoulder of the groom. Isn't that a beautiful picture? So as part of the ceremony, there's this you know, revealing and placing her upon his shoulder. And then there's the wedding supper, which was the final celebration, this feast. And it could last from anywhere from three to seven days. If you remember, the uh, first miracle that Jesus ever performed was at a wedding feast. They ran out of wine. They had gone on for a few days, probably, and they came to Jesus, as his mother did, and he turned water into wine. It happened at a wedding supper. Hebrew, Hebrew weddings were very simple, but uh, they involved this long sequence of events, and always, it always ended in this party, in this wedding supper. So the idea, again, for those who first read this book from John and this revelation, the idea of being glad and rejoicing at this event was very easily understood by them. And John uses this image of a wedding feast, this married supper of the Lamb to encourage them and to encourage us to hold on. Remember that this was written to Christians who were being persecuted, burned at the stake. Many of them, uh, their lives taken from them because they followed Jesus. And there was this question, you know, how could that happen? And, And the struggle, you know, I love God, I'm following Jesus, I've given my life to Him and and they're suffering great persecution at this time. And, and so this image, you've got to get this, this image of the the wedding and the, the wedding supper of the Lamb is to encourage them to hold on, don't give up. A great celebration is coming. But it also reminds them and us again of the intensity and the depth of God's desire and love for us. He loves us like a groom loves his bride. And so the question is, we've tried each week to kind of answer the so what, Okay. So what? What do we do with this? What would be a reasonable response to that love? What's our part in this wedding? Look at verse 7. Let us rejoice and be glad and give Him glory. Part of our response is to rejoice, to give God glory, to be glad. For the wedding supper of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. Verse 8. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. And again, it defines here for us what that means. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. The latter part part of verse 7 says this, His bride has made herself ready. And the question I want to ask you, what does that mean for us? If you've been a bride, you already know what that means. It means a lot of work. (laughs) It means a lot of time and preparation. I officiated at uh, my nephew Scott's wedding this last July in Southern California. And uh, his wonderful wife, uh, Dara, and I watched her. We were there the week before the ceremony. And she spent... Literally hundreds of hours in preparation. It took them over 30 hours just to do the programs. Uh, and then trust me, the entire day, the wedding was at 6 o'clock in the evening, and the entire day, all Dara did was prepare herself for the wedding. Now it's important to note that she didn't do that to earn the right to be a bride. You don't do all that so that you can, okay, now I'm, I'm worthy of being a bride. That's not the point. She didn't do it to gain or earn Scott's love. She already had his love. She didn't do it to somehow, oh boy, I better take care of all these things, otherwise Scott might not want to marry me or might not love me. No, she did it because of love. All the time, all the effort, all the investment that she made was because of her love. Verse 8, it says that the bride is dressed in fine linens, bright and clean. And again, kind of like I am, except this is polyester, I think. But, but uh, bright and clean and it defines the fine linen as the righteous acts of the saints. How do we prepare ourselves? Well, we give Him glory, we rejoice, we praise Him. And there's some things that we can do. Now, you need to understand that the righteous acts that are referred here to here are not by any means, again, our attempt to get God to love us. They are not a way to earn His favor or His affection. They are acts of love. They are a response to the love we already have. From the groom. And to the love that we already have from God. But it's important that we note here that there are some things that we get to do. There's there's some preparation on our part. And it's an important part of getting ready for His return. You see, what we do counts. Let me put it this way. What you do counts. It does matter because it demonstrates your love for God. Hebrews 6.10 says this, God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you've shown Him as you've helped his people and continue to help him. The writer says very clearly, Hey, listen, God's good. He's just. And he's going to remember. He will not forget the work. What work? Those righteous acts, those deeds. He won't forget your work and the love you've shown him as you've helped his people and continue to help him. Again, these are not righteous acts to earn somehow our salvation. They're not righteous acts to earn God's love or to somehow get him to like us more. We already have that. Just like Scott already loved Daryl with all his heart. She could have showed up, you know, in shorts and and a t-shirt. And he would have been just as excited that day to see his bride. Trust me, I know this. It was not what, you know, she did that earned her his love. But righteous acts are acts of servanthood. They're acts of sacrifice. They're acts of love. Get this, acts of love. Love for God and love for His people. They, were, they are an outward manifestation of an in reality of what God has done for us. You see, Jesus loves me. And so I prepare for His coming by doing righteous acts out of love. He loves you and He calls and invites you. The New Testament is clear about this. We get messed up because we get confused with why we do these things. We think we have to do them to somehow earn. We don't. We do them because of. We do them in response to the love God has for us. The great prostitute Babylon corrupted, seduced, and destroyed people with her depraved morality and her self-serving acts. The church, the bride of Christ on the other hand, in complete contrast to Babylon, the church shows how different she is because she prepares herself for the groom by good works done in love, which honor and glorify God. And John is so overwhelmed by this. You, You need to see what he does. He's so overwhelmed that he falls on his face in worship. Revelation 19, verse 9, Then the angel said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, These are the true words of God. Verse 10, At this I fell at his feet to worship him. He's just overcome. He's overwhelmed. And so he falls at the feet of this angel to worship him. But the angel said, Do not do it. I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. It, it, how clear can that be? It's just, no, no, don't, don't do this, John. I know you're overwhelmed, but here's the focus of your attention. Here's the focus of your adoration. Worship God. And then he says, For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy, which basically just means that the witness of prophecy and this prophecy and revelation is all about Jesus. The angel saying, It's not about me, it's about him. The first feast is awesome and glorious. And we can look forward to that day when we're going to celebrate with Him. We're going to party with Jesus. And it's going to be that celebration of a bride and groom who have passionately and intensely and with all their hearts embraced and loved one another. The second feast in this chapter is quite different. Let's take a brief look at it. It is the feast of great tragedy. Number two, a feast of great tragedy. Look at verse 11. John says, I saw heaven open and there before me was a white horse Now they're dressed in white and clean on white horses. Verse 15, out of his mouth, out of the mouth of Jesus, comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of kings, Lord of lords. Verse 17, and I saw an angel standing in the sun. Interesting phrase there. Uh, It literally means standing in the sun. So somehow he is in that great ball of fire in the, in the heavens. He's standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair. Come, gather together for the great supper of God. Not the same celebration we're talking about earlier in this chapter. The great celebration, the great supper of God. Verse 18. So that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, and mighty men of horses and their riders and the flesh of all people, free and slave, small and great. And Verse 21. It says, the rest of them were killed with the sword that came out of the mouth of the rider on the horse. And all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. Told you it's kind of gruesome, huh? The picture here, though, of Jesus goes from groom to warrior. And it's one chapter. We have this different shift now. And they're not in contrast to each other. They are complementing to each other. They, they are just these different facets, of the different roles Jesus has. But here he goes from groom to warrior. The image of him on a white horse shows again the incredible authority that Jesus has. In John's time, the horse was a military animal, and a white horse would be what a Roman uh, general would ride on after victory back into Rome. The armies of heaven, in verse 14, includes all those who throughout the ages belong to him. So my my dad's going to be part of that army if he comes before I die. And if, and if, if after I'm gone, then I'll be in that army, so will you. And with the sword out of his mouth, mentioned in verse 15 and verse 21, This enemy army is utterly and completely destroyed by the army of Jesus. Just by the word, by the sword out of his mouth, the the armies are defeated. And the imagery of an angel calling birds to gather for a great feast, again, I know it's gruesome, but it paints a picture of reality that we cannot ignore. Those who reject God and fight against him become bird food. That's what's happening here. You fight God in the end, it's not going to be a pretty sight. The first feast shows the longing of God to be with his bride, with his people. But this same God, and this picture is consistent throughout this book, and I just want to land on it again. This same God will bring final judgment to all who reject his offer of grace and salvation. I was about seven or eight years old back in the early 60s, a long time ago. I stayed at a friend's house one night. And uh, back then, believe it or not, uh, most people had black and white TVs. And only one, and uh, the friends' the house that I stayed at, they were watching the Alfred Hitchcock, I think, it came out 1963 movie, The Birds. Anybody ever seen the movie The Birds? Wow, really? Uh, it's a classic. It's a it's a, an old uh, scary film, and I knew that I was not supposed to watch stuff like that. My mom and dad had been very clear with me about television. In fact, they didn't even like TV. Um, didn't want me to watch hardly anything, but they definitely would not want me to watch that. I'm at a friend's house, guess what I did? I watched it. I had nightmares for weeks after that. Every time I went into a phone booth, I'm terrified that there's going to be birds. That I step outside, and I would think about them plucking my eyes out. And just I, I won't go into any more detail than that. But if you've seen the movie, you know it's scary. And it terrified me. And this image is pretty scary. But it's not meant, let me make this clear, it is not meant to terrify us into relationship with Christ. Fear, like guilt, is a lousy motivator. That's not why this is here. Why it's here is to remind us of what's at stake. At the choice that we again have to make. We can choose to be a part of the wedding supper of the Lamb, that great celebration. Or we can choose to be a part of something that's going to be far less and Far than that, and far more gruesome and horrible than that as well. And again, the choice is ours. God's desire for intimacy with us is undeniable. And it's unfathomable. His desire is so extreme that He sent His one and only Son so that you and I could be restored to a relationship with Him. And again, some of you have been around, you've heard that yet. you got, oh yeah, okay, thank you very much. I move on. But you know what? The entire Bible story, the entire Bible story is the story of God wanting to be in relationship with you. Wanting to be in relationship with us. He longs for you. If you walk away with any understanding of what we've talked about today, walk away with this truth. I don't know where you're at in your relationship with Him, but walk away with this truth. He longs for relationship with you. If you've known Him a long time, fan the flame of that understanding and passion in your heart. That the One who gave us life for you longs for you like a groom longs for His bride. If you've been investigating Christianity and you're here today kind of checking out what does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to be a Christ follower? I want you to know that it means to be in love with the One who loves you more than life itself. He longs for you. His desire is for you and to be in relationship with you like a groom longs for and loves His bride. My daughter, Jessica, uh, this is her last Sunday with us, and many of you know that. She's moving to, to a Lowell, Oregon on Tuesday to marry a, a guy named Nathan Harris, who's a pastor there. And uh, going down early, the wedding's not until January, and she will be back. In fact, she's going to be here. But uh, going down early to get a job, get settled in, and go through premarital counseling with Nathan. And um, I have a lot of mixed emotions and feelings about this, as you can imagine. I love my kids. My wife's been crying for two weeks. It's my turn, I guess. I love my new son-in-law, Nathan. He's a great man. He's a godly man. I love him. And I love watching my son and my daughter together, uh, my son-in-law-to-be and my, my daughter together. You know, <laughs> it's just great to see fresh, young love. Can't keep their hands off each other, which I've talked to them about a couple times. Uh, <laughs> They kiss in front of me and you go, oh, you know, like, that's my daughter. <laughs> I'm sure that I'll be crying uh, the day that I walk her down this aisle to her groom. And I know Nathan, I know he's got this infectious great laugh, <laughs> and I know he's going to be beaming from ear to ear as he stands on this platform and he sees his bride to be come through those doors down to. Join Him. I want you to hear this one more time. And again, it's such a simple truth. And so simple that sometimes we miss how profound it is. God loves you more than you can possibly imagine. I don't know what you've been going through. How difficult your life has been. I've had a hard couple of weeks, personally. A lot going on. I don't know what is in your world right now. But I do know this. Jesus is there. He loves you. He's there to walk side by side, arm in arm with you through whatever you face. He's there because of his great love. One of the best ways to be reminded of that longing and the love of God is to celebrate another supper what's often called the Lord's Supper. We're going to have communion today. Now let me just say this as I wrap this up and in just a moment we'll have the communion elements passed, and I'll have the band come back and we'll sing together. But look, let me just bring it down to right where you live, right here. If you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior yet, if you've not embraced His grace and begun your walk with Him, if you've not accepted His free gift of salvation, then as you... Take these elements today as you hold that little cup of grape juice and hold that little cracker in your hand. You hold what represents for us the blood of Christ shed for our sins, for your sins, and His body, the the cracker which represents His body which was broken for you. And I want to encourage you with all of my heart today. If you're here and you've not yet begun your walk with Jesus, right here, right now would be a good time. Right here in this moment, you can take those two elements and as you hold them in your hands... You can simply pray, dear Jesus, thank you for what you did for me. I need your salvation. I'm a sinner. I need your grace. And I choose you today. I choose to embrace, to accept what you've done for me. And so as you hold those elements today, you can begin your journey. And it's just the beginning. But you can begin your journey of faith with him. But for many of us in this room who have already done that today, I want to challenge you. Sometimes communion can just be this thing we go through. This, you know, we kind of just do the motions don't let that happen today. As you hold in your hands that cup and that cracker, let it remind you of His love for you. Let it remind you of all that He has done for you. And let it encourage you that the day is coming. The day is coming when we're going to sit or stand with Him again. We're going to be in that great wedding feast, that great supper, wedding supper of the Lamb and celebrate again with Him forever and ever. And so as you hold those items, thank Him and then have anticipation, hope, joy for a future to come. I'm going to ask the band to come up and I want to pray for you. Let's bow our heads. Let me pray this morning. Lord Jesus, I thank You that You are God who loves us so much that You held nothing back. You gave it all up. You gave up heaven. You came to earth. You gave up all Your glory in the realm of eternity, to come and walk as a a man amongst us. And then, Lord, You gave up Your life. I cannot imagine what it would have been like to to carry on Your shoulders the sins of the world, to be on that cross, broken a body, shedding Your blood, suffering intensely, suffering unbelievable pain and agony. Suffering for the first time in your life. Separation for God for that one moment when you cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As God turned his back on the sin that you bore for us, Lord. The sin you bore for me. Jesus, I pray that this morning, those who are here today that have not yet chosen you would choose you because you, you love them. Not out of fear, but Lord, because of your love for them, that they would choose you today. And that this would be the moment where they say yes to you and begin their life as a Christ follower. And, Lord, I pray with everything within me, would you go deep within our souls today and stir us, Lord. Remind us, God, that we have been bought with a price, that we belong to you. And help us just to respond with love and thanksgiving again for what you've done for us, Lord. And help us to turn our eyes. Lord, there's some here this morning, they have just despaired over their life. I pray this morning, God, that no matter what they are in the midst of right now, that they would choose to look forward to the day, that they would choose to anticipate the day where we will celebrate with you the great wedding feast, the great wedding supper of the Lamb. And that that somehow would shift their focus from what has been overwhelming them to what will come and what will be. Or just as those first Christians were suffering greatly for their faith, and this word would have encouraged them to remember you to look forward, Lord, let us to rem- let us remember you today and look forward to what you're going to do. I pray that in Jesus' name.